welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Before we begin today, I'd like to get a couple items of housekeeping out of the way. Firstly, I'd like to remind you all about the show's Patreon. At the beginning of the last episode, I said that December's bonus episode would be a reading of Marx and Lenin's essays on the Paris Commune. Well, it turns out I was a bit too overly ambitious with that statement, and that episode will still take quite a bit of time to record and edit. Marx and Lenin did enjoy writing quite a bit. In lieu of that, however, I did upload an interview I did with MSU history graduate student Adam Cauldron on a variety of subjects in Japanese history, something I'm sure would prove of interest to you if you enjoyed the previous series I did on the life of Yukio Mishima. So, if any of that sounds interesting to you and you'd like to help support the show financially, please donate $5 a month to the Patreon to gain access to that interview, as well as the whole backlog of bonus content I've uploaded there since the beginning of this season of the podcast. Secondly, I'd like to also remind you that I still have quite a few books up for sale on the show's eBay page, the link to which is in the description of this episode, and I plan to list dozens more when I get the opportunity to. Finally, just a heads up that we are almost to the end of this series on the Haitian Revolution. After four whole months, we only have one more episode to go, this one not included. After the final part of the Haitian Revolution series is uploaded on Christmas Day 2021, it will be my pleasure to begin the next series of the podcast, one covering the life and times of Joan of Arc. Anyway, without further ado, on with the show. In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we witnessed Toussaint Louverture defeat his rival, André Rigaud, in the short but brutal War of the Knives. The aftermath of this war saw Toussaint cement his complete dominance over the colony of Saint-Domingue. But, as fate would have it, just as Toussaint eliminated yet another rival, a new, more powerful one emerged onto the political stage, First Consul of France Napoleon Bonaparte. Having secured the leadership of the French Republic in a coup d'etat that overthrew the Republic's previous executive body, the Directory, First Consul Bonaparte was by far the most powerful man in France at this time. His relationship with his counterpart in Saint-Domingue had been somewhat rocky from the very beginning. At first, Napoleon was too busy conducting the war effort on the European continent to worry about Saint-Domingue. During the War of the Knives, Napoleon put his backing behind Toussaint rather than Rigaud, But when the First Consul was informed of Toussaint's subsequent decision to annex the Spanish portion of the island of Hispaniola against his explicit orders, he began to both hate and distrust Toussaint. Toussaint's defiance made Napoleon susceptible to the murmurings of Toussaint's enemies in France, who were all too eager to inform the First Consul of his duplicitous nature and of his ambitions to flout metropolitan authority and to become the king of Saint-Domingue. The final straw for Napoleon was the news that reached him in October 1801, that Toussaint had gone so far as to promulgate a constitution for Saint-Domingue. Napoleon saw this as being treason, tantamount to a declaration of independence. He immediately began to organize a massive expeditionary force to travel to Saint-Domingue and to overthrow Toussaint and his regime. Napoleon put his brother-in-law, a man named Charles-Victoire Emmanuel Leclerc, in charge of the expedition. To General Leclerc, Napoleon issued detailed orders as to how he was to accomplish his task. Firstly, Leclerc was to make landfall in Spanish Santo Domingo. From there, he was to move westward, while rallying anti-Toussaint elements of the population to his banner. 
Especially, Napoleon wished to mobilize the free people of color, that propertied class of individuals of mixed-race descent. They had been, for the most part, partisans of Toussaint's rival, André Rigaud, and were eager for vengeance. To this end, Napoleon authorized Rigaud, who was in exile in France, to accompany the expedition. Along with Rigaud came a brilliant mixed-race army officer named Alexandre Pétion. Pétion had betrayed Toussaint in the early stages of the War of the Knives, but distinguished himself during the siege of Jacmel, during which he held out against forces led by the dreaded Jean-Jacques Dessalines for over five months. Once Leclerc had managed to instigate widespread resistance to Toussaint and the regime, he was then to meet with Toussaint himself. Napoleon had hoped that Toussaint, feeling pressure by this point, would be willing to negotiate with the French. If Toussaint and his top generals complied with Leclerc and voluntarily ceded their power to him, they would be treated to a comfortable life in exile in metropolitan France. If, however, they failed to comply, they were to be considered traitors to the Republic and were to be dealt with as such. Once Toussaint had been dealt with, Leclerc was then to round up any and all military officers and civil administrators, and have them all deported. With the liquidation of Toussaint's power base, Napoleon supposed that the matter of pacifying Saint-Domingue would be more or less accomplished. What Napoleon had failed to understand in this matter was that Toussaint Louverture had absolutely no ambitions to make Saint-Domingue independent from France. The Constitution of 1801 promulgated by Toussaint did effectively make him the monarch of Saint-Domingue. The Constitution declared Toussaint governor for life and granted him far-reaching political powers. It also, crucially, made no provisions that would allow for the metropolitan government to exercise any degree of control or even oversight over the colony. However, the very first article of the Constitution reaffirmed that Saint-Domingue was an integral part of the French Republic, governed by special laws. Toussaint had not publicly broken with the French, and he had no intention to. In fact, even as rumors began to swirl throughout Saint-Domingue in the final days of 1801 about the plans of the French, Toussaint would hear none of it. He censored these publications which contained such rhetoric, and condemned those who spread these rumors. Quote, How can these people believe that France would, for no reason, wish to destroy those who had spilled blood for the triumph of liberty and the prosperity of the island, who have conserved the colony and made it flourish? Such rumors must be baseless. End quote. But Toussaint Louverture was not a naive man. He had prepared thoroughly for this eventuality. He maintained his army, training and drilling them relentlessly, and equipping them with the latest firearms purchased from American merchants. His army was not one of spear-wielding African tribesmen, as the Europeans would like to claim, but a veteran and disciplined army that had defeated the forces of both Spain and Britain. The French would underestimate them at their own peril. The French armada amassed off the coast of eastern Santo Domingo by late January 1802. From there, the force split up, with contingents of troops headed to each of Saint-Domingue's major cities. Leclerc took personal command of the forces going to Le Cap. Toussaint is said to have given in to despair at the sight of these ships on the horizon, saying, quote, We shall perish, for all of France has come to overwhelm us. End quote. On February 3rd, Leclerc dispatched a message to Henri Christophe, the general who is in charge of the city's garrison. I've mentioned Henri Christophe in passing a couple times in the series, but now I feel it's time to give him a proper introduction, as he will be quite important to our narrative going forward. Henri Christophe was an ethnic Bambara, 
a group native to southern Mali, Senegal, Guinea, and Burkina Faso. He was born in 1767 in a British colony in the Caribbean, most likely Grenada, before being sold to a French merchant based out of Le Cap. He worked as a waiter and a manager in a hotel and restaurant in Le Cap. Thanks to his assiduousness and the social skills he demonstrated in glad-handing with the big white patrons of the hotel, he was able to quickly earn his freedom. In 1779, Henri Christophe joined the Marquis de Rovere's Regiment of Free Men of Color and served as a drummer boy during the Siege of Savannah in the American Revolutionary War. Henri Christophe had served as an officer under Toussaint since the days when he fought under the Spanish flag. He was instrumental in defeating the Rebellion of Moise, and for that he and Dessalines were now considered by Toussaint to be his most trusted and capable generals. On February 3rd, 1802, General Leclerc dispatched a message to Henri Christophe. In this message, Leclerc informed Christophe that France had dispatched troops to pacify any quote-unquote rebels in the colony. Leclerc subtly entreated Christophe to join him in the coming fight, but warned him that, should he refuse to comply, he would be considered among those rebels. Along with his missive to Christophe, Leclerc also issued a general proclamation from Napoleon to the people of Saint-Domingue. In this proclamation, Napoleon reassured the populace that the sole purpose of the army was to protect them from enemies of the Republic. Seeking to quell rumors that his true intention was to restore slavery, Napoleon added, quote, If people tell you that these troops are intended to take away your freedom, you should reply that the Republic will never allow it to be taken from you. End quote. The proclamation did end with a stern warning that any and all who opposed Leclerc and the army would be considered traitors to the Republic. Quote, Whoever dares to separate from the Captain General will be a traitor to the homeland, and the wrath of the Republic will devour him, just as fire devours your dried-up sugarcane. End quote. To ensure that the First Consul's message was understood by the people on no uncertain terms, Leclerc took care that it was translated into Creole, the local vernacular language of the island. Henri Christophe hesitated. He could have few illusions as to the true intentions of Leclerc and his army. They were here to dislodge Toussaint from power. But what could he do? Officially, Toussaint and Saint-Domingue remained loyal to the French Republic. Christophe had absolutely no desire to be branded a traitor, but ultimately his loyalty to his commander-in-chief outweighed his loyalty to the Republic. Christophe informed Leclerc that he would not allow for the army to disembark at Le Cap without explicit orders from Toussaint. He followed this up with a threat, quote, you will enter the town of Le Cap only once it has been reduced to ashes, and, upon those ashes, I will fight you. End quote. Leclerc was so enraged at Christophe's intransigence that he had his envoy, a general named Sangros, killed, and his body unceremoniously thrown overboard the ship. On February 4th, word reached Christophe of the capture of Fort Liberté, just to the east of Le Cap. The French commander, the Vicomte de Rochambeau, decided to make an example of the garrison there, and had hundreds of them massacred, even after they had surrendered. It was at this point Christophe made up his mind to fight. Early that morning, Leclerc's forces disembarked at opposite sides of the city, hoping to encircle it and capture it before Christophe could put it to the torch. But they were too late. As soon as Christophe heard the first sound of cannon fire, he ordered his soldiers to spread out throughout the city torches in hand, and to light everything ablaze. It was not long before the whole city was on fire. Suddenly, the city was shaken by a massive explosion. 
the city's gunpowder manufactory had exploded. Kristoff and his soldiers escorted the city's population safely into the hills surrounding the town. As Toussaint rushed to the scene of the fighting, he saw streams of refugees flowing from the burning city. He reprimanded Kristoff for allowing his capital to be set ablaze, but, upon having the situation explained to him, Toussaint demurred. War, it would be. Toussaint declared that, since the French had come to put them back in chains, he would fight them to the very end. He issued instructions to Dessalines, who was in the western province. Toussaint planned to use the greatest weapon that Saint-Domingue had at her disposal, its climate. When Saint-Domingue's rainy season came, so too would a whole host of tropical diseases, and the unacclimated European soldiers would drop like flies. But the rainy season was still months away. In the meantime, he gave Dessalines the following orders, quote, Do not forget, while waiting for the rainy season that will rid us of our foes, that we have no other resource than destruction and fire. Bear in mind that the soil bathed with our sweat must now furnish our enemies with the smallest sustenance. Tear up the roads with shot, throw corpses and horses into the fountains, burn and annihilate everything in the order that those who have come to reduce us from slavery may have before their eyes the image of hell which they deserve. End quote. The combined efforts of Toussaint and Christophe halted Leclerc's advance into the northern province. After having taken Le Cap, Leclerc advanced westwards to the town of Port de Paix. The commander of that city, a man named Maurepas, had his city burnt to the ground by Toussaint's orders. Maurepas and his men managed to keep the invaders pinned down in the ruins of the city, allowing for Toussaint to move his army into a defensive line in the mountains surrounding the northern plain. Dessalines was doing his best putting up resistance in the western province, following Toussaint's orders to the letter. However, elsewhere in the colony, the French invaders were meeting with more success. In the south, a number of Toussaint's officers either surrendered to the French, or in some cases, even defected. In the east, where Toussaint's brother Paul Louverture was in command, the French general Francois Curverseau managed to trick him into surrendering, by convincing him through a forged document that his brother had ordered him to do so. It was at this time that Leclerc made use of his secret weapons, Toussaint's sons. Isaac and Placide Louverture had been studying in France at the time that war broke out, and Napoleon, with them both in his grasp, decided to make ample use of them. Napoleon was kind to them personally, telling them how great their father was and how much good he had done in service of the Republic. He reassured them that France meant them no harm, and that the expedition he was sending there was only intended to assist Toussaint. He decided to send the pair with Leclerc on his expedition, each with a letter in hand. Napoleon's hope was to use the emotional appeal of leveraging Toussaint's own sons against him to entice him to surrender, but his plan did not work. Toussaint, though happy to be reunited with his sons, didn't even bother to read the letter. He knew exactly what it contained. He sent Isaac and Placide back to Leclerc, proposing an end to hostilities. Leclerc agreed on the condition that Toussaint meet with him in person and sent word back with his sons, but Toussaint again refused to do this. Leclerc then declared Toussaint to be an outlaw, interpreting his refusal to cooperate as a declaration of war. Toussaint shot back, declaring Leclerc to be the true outlaw. Leclerc was none too pleased at this development. He knew just as well as Toussaint that time was of the essence. He had hoped to capture Toussaint, and, in cutting off the head of the rebel leadership, he could likely end the campaign rather quickly. 
but now both sides were settling in for what was sure to be a protracted war that neither side was adequately prepared for. Leclerc's men were critically under-provisioned, and, what's more, were beginning to suffer from the ill effects of the climate already. A missive Leclerc sent to Napoleon in February 1802 reads as follows, quote, I have already more than 1,200 men in hospital. Calculate on a considerable waste of life in this country. I am here without food or money. The burning of Le Cap and the districts through which the rebels have retired deprives me of all resources of this kind. It is necessary that the government send me provisions, money, and troops. That is the only means of ensuring the preservation of Saint-Domingue. I have here no resources in commerce. The traders at Le Cap are only Asians of the Americans, and the Americans are, of all Jews, the most Jewish. End quote. Leaving aside the bizarre anti-Semitic remark, Leclerc's desperation comes off quite clearly in this letter. Militarily, the campaign was hardly going much better. The French were advancing steadily, beating back Toussaint's forces where they could, but every step of the way their flanks were harassed constantly by rebels who would open fire on them from the surrounding brush and then beat a quick retreat before a proper response could be mustered. One French officer summed up this dynamic rather succinctly by writing, quote, The enemy held nowhere, and yet never ceased to be masters of the country. End quote. In the western province, Dessalines fought desperately against the advancing French forces, trying to go north to link up with Toussaint and Christophe. Dessalines retreated into his stronghold of St. Mark, but if the French thought that they could corner him into making a last stand there to protect his home, they were sorely mistaken. Dessalines had placed combustible materials throughout strategic points across town, and, as the French approached, they watched the entire city go up in flames. Dessalines even went so far as to personally burn down his recently completed mansion, the French soldiers arrived in the burned-out husk of the town to find the charred bodies of hundreds of residents, mainly whites. The return of war meant that it was open season on the remaining whites of Saint-Domingue. When Dessalines retreated from Saint-Marc, he brought along with him hundreds of white prisoners, fearing, not irrationally so, that they would attempt to join the enemy. By the time Dessalines was finally able to reach Toussaint, however, very few of these white prisoners remained. Toussaint questioned Dessalines as to what exactly had happened to them. Dessalines has explained that most had managed to escape and join the French. The truth of the matter, however, as confirmed by eyewitnesses, was that he had some 800 of them massacred in the town of Verette. Dessalines denied his victims even burial in mass graves. He simply left their corpses to rot on the sides of the road, intending to strike terror into the French soldiers who were pursuing him closely. Meanwhile, in the north, Christophe and Toussaint continued their fighting retreat. On February 22nd, Toussaint and his army found themselves at a place called Ravine à Colviers. Toussaint decided to bring the French forces under General Rochambeau to battle. Toussaint preferred to conduct guerrilla warfare where he could, but he was determined to defend the town of Gonaïves, where he believed his family was located. The forces of Toussaint and Rochambeau were more or less evenly matched. Both sides brought about 3,000 troops to the engagement. Before the battle, Toussaint addressed his soldiers with his usual rhetorical flair. Quote, you are going to fight against men who have neither faith, law, nor religion. They promise you liberty, but they intend your servitude. Why have so many ships traversed the ocean, if not to throw you again into chains? They disdain to recognize in you submissive children. And, if you are not their slaves, then you are rebels. The mother country, misled by the first consul, 
is no longer anything for you but a cruel stepmother. Uncover your breasts, and you will see them branded with the iron of slavery. During ten years, what have you not undertaken for liberty? Your masters slain or put to flight, the English humiliated by defeat, discord extinguished, a land of slavery purified by fire, and evolving more beautiful under liberty. These are your labors, and these are the fruits of your labors, and the foe wishes to snatch both from your hands. The bones of the French will be scattered among these mountains and rocks, and tossed about by the waves of the sea. Nevermore will they behold their native land, and liberty shall reign over their tomb. End quote. The battle began the following morning. The fighting was fierce, and Toussaint was at the front of it, leading his men charging into the French lines. Midway through the battle, Toussaint was informed that Gonaïves had been captured by the French, but that his family had managed to escape safely. Rather than going to join them immediately, he sent them an armed escort, but remained on the battlefield personally. He would not abandon his troops. Toussaint was eventually forced to retreat, but not before inflicting on the French some 200 casualties, while himself suffering 300. Both sides claimed victory in this battle, which holds the distinction of being one of the few conventional battles of the Haitian Revolution. Meanwhile, Dessalines continued his retreat until he ended up at the fortress of Crete à Pirot. Crete à Pirot was a relatively small fort, built by the British during their occupation of Saint-Domingue's western province. It had been abandoned by its defenders during the campaign, but now Toussaint ordered Dessalines to hold the fort with his troops. Toussaint's plan was to trick Leclerc into thinking that the defense of Crete Pirot was some sort of last stand, and therefore having him tie up his men and attacking it. Meanwhile, Toussaint would lead his forces back to retake the north right out from under his nose. In the first days of March, Dessalines left a portion of his soldiers at the fortress and ordered them to dig a series of trenches around it. At the same time, Dessalines led the remainder of his forces southwards to draw in his French pursuers. They fell right into his trap. As soon as Dessalines was sure that they were onto him, he beat a hasty retreat right back into the fortress. Once he was within Crete Pirot, Dessalines quickly jumped into the trenches, and his men followed him. Then, before the French soldiers could catch up, they were subjected to volleys of gunfire from the fort that they believed to have been abandoned. Some 400 French soldiers were slain in the single encounter. They retreated, taking up positions just outside their enemy's range, and writing frantically to their commander, begging him for reinforcements. Dessalines, meanwhile, entered the fortress to finish preparations for what was sure to be a long and difficult siege. Dessalines then stood before his soldiers and addressed them as follows, quote, Take courage. I tell you, take courage. The French will not be able to remain long in Saint-Domingue. They will do well at first, but they will fall ill and die like flies. Listen. If Dessalines surrenders to them a hundred times, he shall deceive them a hundred times. I repeat, take courage, and you will see that when the French are few, we shall harass them, we shall beat them, we shall burn the harvests and retire into the mountains. They will not be able to guard the country, then I shall make you independent. I will make you free. There will be no more whites among us. End quote. The speech of Dessalines is significant because here he unequivocally reframed the war as a struggle for independence. Unlike Toussaint, who still believed that reconciliation with France was a possibility, Dessalines recognized that the fact that liberty would forever remain endangered so long as Saint-Domingue remained attached to France. Dessalines paced across the ramparts of the fort, 
At one point, he, leaning on a barrel of gunpowder, lit a torch and invited all those there who did not have the heart to fight to leave. Quote, if the French set but a single foot in here, I will blow everything up. End quote. To this, every man in the garrison replied that they were willing to die for liberty. In the night, Dessalines dispatched one of his most trusted officers, Marie-Jean Lamartiniere, to go into the nearby countryside and raise plantation laborers to fight the French. Lamartiniere was, in fact, a woman, although she dressed in men's clothing and fought alongside them. That next morning, the French, under General Boudet, attempted a frontal assault on the fort. Dessalines dispatched a small force to meet them. They lured the French in close, and once more they jumped into the trenches, and the French were once more gunned down as they approached the fort. Several hundred were killed. Another division under General Charles Duga arrived on the scene shortly thereafter, only to fall for the exact same ruse once more. The French lost several hundred troops, and General Duga was mortally wounded. Perhaps realizing that frontal assault tactics were useless, the French fell back and began to subject the fort to an artillery bombardment. The French artillery corps was led by Alexandre Pétion, free man of color and Dessalines old nemesis. Pétion's skills carried the day, as he subjected the fort to volley after volley of fire. Pétion apparently made quite a good impression on his French allies during this time. When the men from his regiment, composed entirely of free men of color, complained about being constantly placed on the front line, Pétion reprimanded them, telling them that they should be honored to be at the front. Inside the fort, meanwhile, the defenders were beginning to run low on supplies of food and water, but under such conditions, they held out for three days of constant bombardment. Toussaint wrote to Dessalines, informing him that he was on his way to provide reinforcements, and attacked the besieging forces by surprise. But Dessalines and company could not hope to hold out much longer. After the third day of the bombardment, Dessalines gave the order to abandon the fort. On the night of March 24th, Le Martinier led the remainder of the garrison out of the fortress. They fought their way fiercely through enemy lines until they had created a breach, and then they ran for it. Leclerc entered the fort the next day to find it in ruins. The rebels had absconded with anything of value they could take, and rendered the rest unusable. The capture of Crete à Pirot was technically a victory for the French. The route northwards lay open, but it was a fearic victory. The defenders had lost only between 200 and 300 of their original strength of 1,200. The attackers, meanwhile, had lost 1,500 men. The French were demoralized. Throughout the siege, during lulls in the action at night, the French soldiers encamped outside could hear the defenders of the fort singing along to French revolutionary songs, such as Sa Ira and the Marseillaise. This led many among them to question their cause. They asked, quote, have our barbarous enemies justice on their side? Are we no longer the soldiers of Republican France? Have we become the crude instruments of policy? End quote. Leclerc was embarrassed by the losses sustained during the siege, and entreated his officers to underreport their casualties in their dispatches back to the mainland. In the north, Toussaint tried to fight his way to Creta Piro, hoping to relieve Dessalines in time. At one encounter near Fort Bedouret, Toussaint noticed that the uniforms of the advancing enemy soldiers were those of the regiment commanded by his general Maurepas, the man who had proved instrumental in the aftermath of the burning of Le Cap. Maurepas had been cornered by the French near Port-de-Paix and was enticed by them to defect, which he did. Toussaint, realizing immediately what had happened, rode out to within mere feet of the soldiers, sword in hand, and exclaimed, quote, Soldiers of the 9th Regiment, will you dare fire on your general, your fathers, and your brothers? End quote. 
Maurepas's men fell to their knees, begging Toussaint to forgive their offense. He gladly took them back into his ranks, because he needed all the help that he could get. Up to this point, Toussaint had been counting on the masses of laborers to flock to his banner against those who had no doubt intended to put them back into slavery. But such mass mobilization did not occur. Toussaint had gravely alienated the laboring masses in the wake of Moise's rebellion. Moise had been their hero, the champion of the working man. They could not understand why Toussaint would have him killed. Moreover, they did not understand why Toussaint was now calling on them to fight against the whites. Had he not assiduously pursued a policy of reconciliation and appeasement of the whites, both in Saint-Domingue and in France, why was he now calling on them to fight against them? Many simply had failed to understand this turn of events. But, now that Dessalines had now so openly and brazenly called for independence, the meaning of the struggle changed. Partisans across the island were now fighting for the cause of independence, attacking and confounding the French forces with their unorthodox fighting tactics. But for all this, Toussaint could not recognize the advantage that co-signing Dessalines' call for independence would grant him. He still believed that reconciliation with France was still possible. He labored under the assumption that if he managed to defeat Leclerc and send him back to France with a message for Napoleon, that he could get Napoleon to send someone else with whom he could negotiate the surrender of his powers. He mistakenly believed that Leclerc was acting in explicit defiance of the First Consul's orders. In mid-April, Henri Christophe, who still commanded some 1,200 troops and controlled a strategically important area in the Northern Plain, made contact with General Leclerc, indicating that he was willing to surrender. Christophe, having been a city dweller and a hotel manager for much of his life, had grown weary of his life as a rebel and the deprivations that the life entailed. Leclerc was elated to receive Christophe's defection and told him that he would allow him to retain his command. Christophe agreed. Toussaint had just been dealt a devastating blow. The rainy season was now upon them. If Christophe had managed to hold out for just a few months longer, the scourge of disease would have been upon the French, just as Toussaint had planned, and a strategy to defeat Leclerc and send him back packing to the metropole may have succeeded. But now, Toussaint had the opportunity to negotiate with Leclerc, using Christophe as a liaison. Toussaint informed Leclerc that his surrender was predicated on three completely non-negotiable conditions. One, the guarantee of liberty for all in Saint-Domingue. Two, the maintenance of the functions and ranks of all of his military officers. And three, that Toussaint himself be allowed to retire within Saint-Domingue. This presented Leclerc with a conundrum. Napoleon's explicit orders had been to not allow a single black above the rank of captain to remain on the island. And here Toussaint was, demanding that all of his officers not only be allowed to retain their ranks, but their functions as officers of the French army. Napoleon had wanted to decapitate Toussaint's army, but Leclerc recognized that he had need for them. His own European troops were, just as Toussaint had predicted, beginning to drop like flies from yellow fever. If Christophe, Toussaint, and the other generals could bring with them their troops into the French camp, it would be just what Leclerc needed to pacify the partisan resistance that was still ongoing in the countryside. Ultimately, the prospect of Toussaint's surrender was too appealing to Leclerc to not take advantage of. And so it was that Toussaint and Leclerc met in La Cap. Toussaint, surrounded by his honor guard, signed an agreement whereby he agreed to retire to his plantation at Henri, while Leclerc guaranteed him the retention of his rank. Dessalines followed Toussaint into surrender shortly thereafter, but Dessalines was not slink dejected into retirement. 
he had his own plans. At Creta Pirot, he had pledged to his soldiers, quote, If Dessaline surrenders to them a hundred times, he shall deceive them a hundred times, end quote. And deception is exactly what Dessaline intended. Resistance to the French continued in the countryside. Leclerc sought to eliminate these final bands of rebels, using the soldiers under the command of Christophe and Dessalines to do the dirty work for him. One such area of popular resistance was a place called Mapu, not too far from the plantation to which Toussaint had been compelled to retire. Naturally, Toussaint was suspected of aiding and abetting these rebels. This was untrue. Every source indicates that Toussaint truly did wholly dedicate himself to maintaining his plantation, and that he refrained from engaging in such intrigue during this time. Leclerc, however, had a powerful and abiding mistrust of Toussaint, having previously called him, quote, the most false and deceitful man in the world, end quote. Leclerc had become convinced that peace could not return to Saint-Domingue so long as Toussaint remained in the colony. So he conspired to have him arrested and deported. Leclerc had one of his generals, Jean-Baptiste Brunet, write to Toussaint to invite him to a meeting at his headquarters under false pretenses. Toussaint, despite having received numerous warnings that Leclerc intended on having him arrested, went to the meeting anyway. He arrived at General Brunet's headquarters at 8 o'clock in the evening, and after a brief, unrelated conversation, Brunet retired from the room, only to return with a squad of grenadiers, bayonets affixed and raised. Toussaint, startled, attempted to draw his sword, but was informed by Brunet, quote, General, we have come to do you no harm. We merely have orders to secure your person, end quote. At this, Toussaint threw down his sword and submitted to arrest. His family, including his wife Suzanne and his sons Isaac and Placide, were subsequently arrested. All of them were hurried aboard a waiting frigate in the harbor of La Cap. As he boarded the ship that was to carry him into exile, Toussaint famously declared, quote, In overthrowing me, you have only cut down in Saint-Domingue the trunk of the Tree of Liberty. It will spring up again by the roots, for they are numerous and deep. End quote. Leclerc believed that he had won a great victory with Toussaint's expulsion from the island, but ultimately it would backfire on him spectacularly. Almost immediately after the news of Toussaint's arrest broke out, the call to rebellion was being issued across the northern province. Regardless of Toussaint's recent actions, he had come to embody the liberty that the people of Saint-Domingue had won for themselves. Laborers across the countryside took up arms to defend what was theirs, and Leclerc scrambled to suppress them. To this end, he made extensive use of the black generals that had defected alongside Toussaint, especially Dessalines. Dessalines carried out his new duties with vigor, and was just as brutal in his dealings with his former comrades-in-arms as he was with his erstwhile enemies. Rebels, suspected rebels, women, children, none were safe from the seemingly insatiable bloodlust of Dessalines. He even turned on his former comrade, La Martiniere, and, on the orders of Leclerc, he ambushed and captured her, even while she was still in the service of the French. But Dessalines was playing the long game. The extent to which Dessalines was involved in orchestrating Toussaint's arrest and expulsion from Saint-Domingue is not known for certain. Some historians have suggested that Dessalines wrote to Leclerc in the days immediately before Toussaint's arrest, accusing him of fomenting rebellion in nearby districts, with the intention of having him arrested, although no record of this correspondence exists. Certainly, there was plenty of motive for Dessalines to do something of this nature. He had remained loyal to Toussaint for a decade, but he realized that, as C.L.R. James wrote, quote, the revolutionary movement had passed him by, end quote. Dessalines knew that so long as Toussaint remained even the nominal figurehead of revolution in Saint-Domingue, 
he would always try to seek compromise with the French. Dessalines, however, would accept nothing less than unequivocal independence and the total expulsion of the French from Saint-Domingue, and he knew that Toussaint was not up to this task. Thus, he had to remove him from the political picture and place himself at the head of the revolution. It had become all too apparent to General Leclerc that he could not accomplish the First Consul's directive to dismantle Toussaint's officer corps. They were simply too powerful, and he had need of them in suppressing the rebellion. Finding it impossible to accomplish his objective, in June 1802, Leclerc decided to carry out a different aspect of Napoleon's orders, the disarmament of the general population. Perhaps unwisely, Leclerc entrusted this project to his most able enforcer, Dessalines. Dessalines took advantage of Leclerc's trust to undermine the process. He had weapons which he made a show of confiscating from the common people secretly returned to them, even with extra ammunition, so that the people would be prepared when Dessalines gave them the high sign to rebel once again. Leclerc's attempt to disarm the population of Saint-Domingue resulted in a renewed series of rebellions by cultivators, and even defections of some soldiers in the north. As the French managed to suppress the rebels in one part of the country, they would just rise up in another. Leclerc's generals responded to the uptick in resistance by enacting an official policy of terror. Leclerc announced, quote, It is only through terrible examples that we will succeed in disarming the country and give this important colony back to its splendor and prosperity. I therefore give you permission to hang any rebel or malcontent, end quote. Now, methods as brutal as those utilized by Dessalines were made official French policy. As in almost all wars of counterinsurgency, the French found it increasingly difficult to distinguish between civilian and combatant. Blacks were arrested in scores, based on no more evidence than the mere suspicion of a French officer. Public executions were carried out on the plantations, in front of the assembled cultivators, so as to make examples of the victims. Despite the calamitous effects of the disarmament campaign, Leclerc claimed to have successfully disarmed and pacified the whole of the southern province by July. Encouraged by spurious reports of Leclerc's successes, Napoleon made the fateful decision to reinstate slavery throughout the French colonial empire. What accounts for this sudden about-face in policy? Many are quick to point to the influence of politically well-connected groups, such as the reactionary émigrés, the maritime bourgeoisie, and the big white former plantation owners of Saint-Domingue as being the primary factor. But, in reality, this decision defies such a simple explanation. While it is true that Napoleon was in many ways beholden to the interests of these aforementioned groups, should moral considerations not have taken precedence when making such a monumental decision? After all, Napoleon was a former member of the avowedly abolitionist Jacobin Club. The truth of the matter was that Napoleon had more practical considerations in mind. Napoleon was seeking to restore the old French colonial empire as a means of enhancing the nation's wealth and prestige. In this era, the colonial project and slavery were simply inexorable. As C.L.R. James put it succinctly, quote, no slavery, no colony, end quote. Such a decision was easy for someone like Napoleon to make, because he was rather far removed from all the excesses of slavery. And what's more, he was still subject to many of the same biased attitudes held by Europeans at the time. He is at one point quoted as saying, quote, I am for the whites because I am white. I have no other reason, and that one is good. How is it possible that liberty was given to Africans, to men who had no civilization, who didn't know what the colony was, what France was? End quote. In short, Napoleon and France had everything to gain and little to lose by reinstating slavery. 
and, in their minds, it was a decision made easier given their attitudes towards the former slaves themselves. Napoleon was careful not to reinstate slavery throughout the whole of the former empire at once. He first saw to it that slavery was reinstated in the territories returned to France by the Treaty of Amiens, such as Martinique and Réunion. Next, the slave trade was officially reinstated. Napoleon was wise to stop just short of restoring slavery in Guadeloupe and Saint-Domingue, colonies where slave unrest had proved troublesome in the past and where the news was likely to be ill-received. Rather, he delegated that decision to General Leclerc in Saint-Domingue and General Antoine Richepance in Guadeloupe. Richepance moved to reinstate slavery almost immediately upon being given permission to do so, thus putting Leclerc in a rather difficult position. He himself had no desire whatsoever to reinstate slavery. In fact, he appreciated the fact that such an action would almost certainly doom his expedition to failure. He did his best to suppress the information of Richepance's decision in Guadeloupe, but it was of little use. One day in mid-July 1802, a frigate carrying a number of black deportees from Guadeloupe arrived in Le Cap Harbor. A few of the captives managed to jump overboard, and they quickly spread the news to the people of Saint-Domingue that slavery had been re-established in Guadeloupe. Word spread quickly. Leclerc, for his part, was mortified. His brother-in-law had essentially presented him with a fait accompli. The word was out, and the matter was out of his hands. Even if he did not plan to reinstate slavery, the people of Saint-Domingue nevertheless believed that he would. The disarmament campaign had been their first indication that the intentions of the French were not as they claimed. The people remembered Toussaint's maxim that, quote, the rifle is the guarantor of liberty in Saint-Domingue, end quote. News of the restoration of slavery in Guadeloupe seemed to confirm their suspicions. Now, the insurrection against the French became a general one. All on Saint-Domingue, be they cultivators or free men, understood the stakes. The news of the reinstatement of slavery in Guadeloupe and the subsequent general insurrection made Leclerc's desperate position even more desperate. It was summer, the season of the dreaded yellow fever. The Frenchmen, as Dessalines had predicted, were dropping like flies. Of the 31,000 troops that had made landfall in Saint-Domingue in February of that year, only some 10,000 were still in fighting shape. Yellow fever accounted for over half of these casualties. Over the following weeks, Leclerc penned several panicked letters to Napoleon, begging him to reconsider his decision. In a letter dated August 6th, he wrote, quote, I have asked you, citizen consul, to do nothing that might make the blacks fear for their freedom until I was ready, and I was making rapid progress towards that moment. All of a sudden, there arrived the decree that legalizes the slave trade, along with letters from merchants in Nantes and Le Havre asking whether they can sell blacks here. We're still... General Richepont has just ordered an issue re-establishing slavery in Guadeloupe. Now that your plans for the colonies are known to everyone, citizen consul, if you wish to keep Saint-Domingue, send a new army here. I am telling you that, if you abandon us to our own devices as you have done up until now, that the colony is lost, and, once lost, you will never get it back. My letter will surprise you, citizen consul, after those I have written to you, but is there a general who could have reckoned with an 80% death rate in his army, and with the survivors being useless, who has been left without money like me in a country where nothing is bought except with hard cash, and where, with money, I could have eliminated many obstacles? Could I have expected, in such circumstances, the law and the slave trade, and especially the orders of General Richepance that re-establish slavery and deny men of color the status of citizen? End quote. Another letter of Leclerc's, dated August 25th, 1802, quote, Do not think of establishing slavery here for some time. 
After the innumerable proclamations I have issued to reassure the blacks here of their liberty, I do not wish to contradict myself. End quote. Leclerc lamented the fact that, with the looming reinstitution of slavery, he had lost whatever moral high ground he had began with. The only weapon he had left was terror, and so the summary executions picked up in pace. At the height of it, 60 suspected insurgents were hanged in La Cap in a single day. The brutality of the French and their perceived intention to reinstate slavery not only led to an uptick of insurgency in the countryside, but also to mass defections within the army itself. Even some of the officers who had heretofore served the French loyally began to find their mission unconscionable. In mid-August, an officer named Charles Belair, a former underling of Toussaint who had served by his side since the days when they fought under the Spanish, conspired to turn on the French. Belair secretly contacted Dessalines, asking him if he would join him. But the time was not yet right for Dessalines to spring his plan, so he dutifully had Belair arrested and sent to Leclerc, whereupon he was executed. In spite of, or perhaps even due to the grisly punishments that were meted out by the French against insurgents, defections in the army continued apace. For the time being, however, the most high-ranking officers, Dessalines, Christophe, Pétion, and others, remained firmly in the French camp, but it would only be a matter of time before they, too, defected. And it is on that note that I will leave things for today. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks as we go over what will hopefully be, well, what will be, the final chapter in this extremely elongated series on the Haitian Revolution, as Jean-Jacques Dessalines takes the fate of Saint-Domingue into his hands and leads the incipient nation of Haiti to its freedom. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature, you can address such things to me via email at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can also reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in the description of this episode. Also in this episode's description, you will find links to the show's Patreon page and to the eBay store, two ways that you can help support the show financially and get something for yourself at the same time. In any event, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dylan Connor, signing out.